The Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond. Welcome to the third episode of the Humanitarian Hub podcast recorded here at SOAS Radio. We're releasing this podcast alongside the Humanitarian Hub blog to highlight the debates, research and current issues surrounding humanitarian work globally. Hopefully it will give insights into the kind of topics that will be covered in SOAS's latest MSc, Humanitarian Action, which is a two-year online master's beginning in October 2019. Last week I spoke with Amy Jose, a third-year BA undergrad student studying development studies, and I spoke to her about her research on her dissertation, which focused on sexual exploitation within the humanitarian sector. This week, however, I spoke to Professor Steve Hopgood. Steve is a professor of international relations at SOAS, and his main areas of interest are the international politics of humanitarianism and human rights. He is the author of several books, including American Foreign Environmental Policy and the Power of the State, Keepers of the Flame, Understanding Amnesty International, and most recently, The End Times of Human Rights. However, we were primarily discussing his most recent article, which is entitled When the Music Stops, Humanitarianism in a Post-Liberal World Order. He argues in his article... Due to the changing nature of geopolitics and the way in which the liberal world order is constantly being challenged almost every day, he calls into question the way in which global humanitarianism, as we currently understand it, is possible. And we really focused on this topic primarily, thinking about the shrinking of humanitarian spaces, which has increasingly become more common, especially with the bombing of hospitals uh, in places like Yemen and Syria. We go on to discuss the future of the humanitarian sector and also human rights. And it's interesting to see how he thinks human rights are going to be the most greatly impacted uh, by this shifting geopolitical stance within the world, uh, whereas humanitarianism hopefully won't fare too badly. He ultimately sees the conception of humanitarianism as changing as we move forward and power shifts increasingly away from the liberal centres of the West that we have become used to. He highlights in particular the rise of China and the weakening of the relevant position of the US. He talks about the complexities that arise between humanitarianism and the humanitarian principles, and with those, the state interests and the growth of sovereign power, which is increasingly becoming important to states around the world. He highlights in particular increasingly the growing number of deaths among humanitarian workers and the dangers that they are put in, whereas he sees even 20 years before uh, these things would be ultimately unimaginable. At the end of the chat, we try and find some positives, and he talks uh, of a need for a greater localization of humanitarian action, but he ultimately sees this shift as being unlikely due to the business-like structure of large humanitarian organizations who have just too much to lose. Uh, so we talk extensively about this very interesting article and ultimately what Professor Hopgood's understanding of the future of the humanitarian sector and industry is likely to be amidst changing world orders. And it's very interesting to hear what he has to say about domestic politics and how it plays into the global humanitarian sphere. So I hope you enjoy episode three of the Humanitarian Hub podcast. Professor Steve Hopgood, hello. Hi. So could you give us a brief overview of your recent article? Yes, the article, which is called When the Music Stops, is uh, really a look at what will happen to humanitarianism in a world where liberal powers are no longer dominant at the level of the international system. 
And I need to begin, as it were, with a caveat straight away, which is I'm not for a moment um, idealising what the international system has been like with liberal powers in charge. So we can point to many um, uh, acts of abuse or atrocity, many uh, hypocrisies that have been perpetrated by the United States, Western Europe, the UK and other liberal governments. So it's not that I think we've th there has been a, a particularly... Um, a rosy period which is coming to an end but I think the period we have lived to is changing in a variety of fundamental ways. And that period goes back really to the origins of humanitarianism in the international system and it also encompasses the growth of a human rights regime at the international level too. I would date that back into the 19th century and with the foundation of um, the International Committee of the Red Cross and then various kinds of international humanitarian law developments in the late 19th, 30th, 20th century. Post-Empire, many of these institutions continued and much of the 20th century was taken up with the dominant liberal powers building a whole series of liberal institutions at the global level, League of Nations, United Nations, UNHRC, uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights and any other number of UN and other agencies. Now, as I say, I'm not idealising the way in which those powers did their business. Often they pursued narrow national interests and committed many um, uh, um, acts which we would find unacceptable themselves. But what they did do was establish a space in which both humanitarianism initially and the human rights more generally could operate. In other words, if you like, as part of that sort of global liberal settlement where the some some notion of the basic equal moral worth and principle of persons opened up spaces of conflict, civil war, natural disaster, to a whole sort of army of non-governmental organisations, non-governmental actors, some of whom were following on the, the side effects of great power foreign policy, so all sorts of stuff to do with Vietnam and the boat people or Cambodia, the Western powers were heavily implicated in all of those things. Again, I just want to stress this, it's not that we've had a golden period which is coming to an but it was a period which functioned for humanitarians and then from the 1970s, 1980s onwards it functioned for um, uh, human rights organisations. Because those liberal powers tended to, uh, through much of this period, were very dominant, particularly the United States, they were able to establish um, international rules and norms around humanitarian law, laws of war, conflict and human rights, which broadly speaking they could make other states observe, sometimes through co threat of coercion, sometimes through deals of one sort or another. And so at the same time as those liberal powers effectively um, became influential in almost every part of the globe, so this army of sort of ministers to the, the, the downside of international politics could also go more or less anywhere. Red Cross, MSF, the International Rescue Committee, World Vision, all of these sorts of organisations became a part and parcel of life at the international level. Now that relies more than anything else on access for those humanitarian actors to situations of disaster, civil war or various other kinds of um, conflict, mass migration, things of this sort. And because those liberal powers, broadly speaking, dominated the international system, they could find ways to make that access happen. There were potential um, penalties, as it were, for saying no to major humanitarian organisations in some situation because, in a crude sense, the Americans had a variety of ways in which they could punish you for this, or the Europeans. Trade, aid, all those sorts of things. The era we're entering is one where those Western liberal powers do not have that level of leverage anymore. 
the obvious um, reason for that is the rise of China and therefore, relatively speaking, the, the weakening of the power of the United States and even more so potentially the European Union at the international level. Now, if you're China or Russia or India or Indonesia or Brazil or Mexico or any other number of states, Nigeria, South Africa, this whole system is based on rules and norms which you had no part in writing. You often um, uh, have uh, a, a sort of set of social norms and rules which aren't necessarily conflictual with that, but there's many, much else going on. That that global humanitarian regime, broadly speaking, is a, is a secular regime, even though you've got organisations like World Vision and Catholic Relief Service um, involved, they operate mostly according to a set of more or less secular principles about do no harm and about, um, uh, you know, treating suffering, uh, whatever its um, explanations, whatever its reasons. So you have different states, different kind of religious cultural makeup, and saying we didn't make these rules and therefore at the least we want to ask why these are the rules and norms and at the most maybe we're not necessarily going to play the game by these rules anymore. Uh, uh, classic examples of that would be for example what's happening in Syria with the Syrian government and Russia. Okay, We would have assumed that bombing hospitals directly uh, was something that we would not be likely to see whereas in the case of Syria or in the case of Saudi in Yemen that uh, that's now become part of the process of war and it's clear there's absolutely nothing really that it, Western governments or international NGOs can do about this. So that's one example of a core norm of this global humanitarian system that's just been um, uh, is just being overridden. That points to another um, uh, important sort of overriding which is where um, uh, what we would see as civil conflicts where humanitarians were responsible providing, for providing aid to both sides. Now, if you are the Syrian government or if you're Russia or if you're Saudi, you don't see that neutral zone. You just see your opponents and yourself. And therefore, if they're on the other side, they're fair game to barrel bombing from a great height or whatever else uh, might be. And if they're hiding in hospitals, they're fair. there's no neutral space. That sort of neutral space has been eroded. Uh, underlying all of this is one fundamental thing, which is the re-emergence, if you like, of the importance of state sovereignty and the principle of saying what happens within our territory is our business. Now, it's been very hard to say that to uh, powerful Western states for much of the last 40, 50 years, but it's not very hard now, and it's certainly not very hard for the Chinese, for example, to say that. But many other states will follow that, um, um, uh, follow that lead. Even in states like India, um, uh, uh, Narendra uh, Modi, the Prime Minister of India, has a very strong kind of anti-colonial discourse. You know, we're taking hold of and we're taking a charge of our destiny and our future, having been subject to years of pressure from empire, imperial governments and now Western um, governments. All that pushback therefore says, do the rules and norms which humanitarian agencies and actors require to operate still hold? And I'm suggesting that there's just no certainty that they hold at all. And therefore, you will have to negotiate access to situations where there's suffering for whatever reason. And if you do not agree to um, access on the um, conditions laid down by the governments that can grant access, you will not be granted access. So let's take Myanmar as a good example. Um, uh, or another example is Sri Lanka during the end of the civil war in Sri Lanka. 
MSF and they're on record uh, talking about this, agreed to a set of restrictions imposed by the government in Colombo in order to go and see what was happening um, uh, as the um, last vestiges of the Tamil Tigers were being destroyed in what looks on the face of it like a crime against humanity. They agreed to keep quiet about this in order to provide medical care for the people who were injured. And I'm saying that is probably a model for much of what's going to be coming. But there is a, a more positive side of the story for humanitarians, but it will not meet their greatest expectations, as it were, which is, and has two elements to it. In a system of this sort, even, even new great powers, and let's take China as the obvious example, what, and this is an argument you could associate with an American scholar called John Eikenbury, even... Even um, even new powers and non-liberal powers are going to understand that it's much easier to run your empire through consent than it is through coercion. And so what he'll argue is it's not that the Americans necessarily wanted to create a world which was had all these institutions in it, but it's just it's much easier to get people to vote by building coalitions in the background for certain things than it is to keep threatening them with trade wars or some kind of conflict. And so the argument would be the Chinese will work this out. And so rather than push back against many of these international rules and norms, they'll, they'll, they'll work out, oh, I see, this is how you run an empire. You get everybody to vote for something at the UN, and then it just all happens in the background, and you don't have to keep sending off warships or threatening to cut off trade and things. You just stitch it up through multilateral institutions. That's what the British did during and after empire. That's what the Americans and Europeans learned to do. That's what the Chinese will learn to do as well. So some of those rules and norms will survive precisely because they serve the interests of great powers, the new emerging great powers. And then there's a second argument that goes with this, which is actually humanitarianism is really useful. But as I say, it's not necessarily useful in the way that humanitarians want it to be useful, which is great powers going about, all great middle and lesser powers going about you know, trying to expel troublesome minorities, trying to force people to do things they don't want to do, trying to pursue their foreign policy objectives, fighting civil wars or interstate wars, whatever it would be, causes a huge number of casualties. And we can see some of those casualties also just in the general process of, of you know, in, intensified capitalism in the current era too, all the environmental stuff around it. So there's going to be a lot of people suffering in a whole variety of ways. Governments don't want to get in the business of trying to help these people. They might do a high-profile thing and they might send some troops off, but the chronic long-term dealing with, you know, internally displaced people, people who have been um, uh, um, have lost their homes through civil war, people who are subject to famine or other kinds of natural disaster, governments have nothing to gain and everything to lose by getting involved in the business of doing this. So, in fact, all those humanitarian agencies and NGOs are a good alibi for those governments. Don't worry, MSF are there, MSF and the ICRC, they'll deal with it. You don't have to put those under pressure because the experts are there dealing with it. So it's not solving any fundamental structural problem in the international system about inequality, about injustice, about environmental collapse, but it is giving them an alibi to say, don't blame us, the experts are there. And I think, and this is the last point I'll make on this, um, I think that's also, it often serves to comfort middle class, relatively affluent people in the West too, which is, should I be doing something? I see these drowning refugees in the Mediterranean. This is terrible. Something must be done. Oh, it's okay. 
MSF is doing something and the ICRC is doing something and other NGOs are doing something so I can give my money to them and then I can go back to watching Game of Thrones and I've done my bit. And if you didn't have all of that stuff, the pressure on governments to do something, the outcry about these uh, atrocities or disasters, all of this would begin to come back more directly to government. So it's, it's a kind of buffer zone for them to say, actually, something is being done. Give your money to MSF. So what you're saying is almost that there's going to be a shift from global humanitarian organisations, even more to this idea of acting as mopping up global problems. Well, I think they mop up global problems anyway. Mm. I think that's what they already do. And they do a lot of good alongside that. I think that will mean they're still necessary. But they'll, you know, if you get tangled up in anything which involves American or Chinese vital interests, say in Southeast Asia, some conflict in Southeast Asia or something of that sort, imagine the Uyghurs and the the concentration camps in um, in China. You're going. You're just going to trespass on core interests of the of strong states like China, the United States, Russia. You, and you're just not going to be allowed access, and you're just not going to be allowed in. And Myanmar is a good example of that. We don't really know what's going on in Myanmar in detail because the Myanmar's government's powerful enough to stop people getting access. And so. So it becomes much more conditional. If you start reporting on, if you start bearing witness to the atrocities you see, we'll cancel your visas and send you all home. You're only here because we're allowing you to be here and we'll stop you being able to come in. And so I think there'll be more examples of that. That's that's sort of what I'm saying. But they will fare, the humanitarians will fare better than the human rights people because I think the human rights system has minimal upside for states wanting to pursue their own interests. It would be interesting, actually, if we discussed that last point uh, a little more, which was this difference between the global humanitarian system and then the human rights system. And in your article, in particular, you draw comparisons, but also quite wide differences between the two, and highlight how you think humanitarianism will probably fare a lot better in this in this new world order. Uh, if you could maybe talk a bit more about how you define the differences and why it is that one will do slightly better than the other, as it were. So uh, some of this I've already um, uh, um, referred to in the, marks, uh, the remarks that I've made. The key difference is human rights law is really about holding the state to account for obligations it's taken on in relation to the treatment of its own citizens. And so it's almost inherently sovereignty curtailing in principle. It, pro- it provides constraints and restrictions on what states are able to do. Um, and n- even though the European states in particular, but Western states and many other more progressive states have stood behind aspects of that regime, Nobody particularly likes it. You know, the, the, when the International Criminal Court talks about doing preliminary investigations about US troops in Afghanistan or British troops in Iraq, both those governments push back really hard. So no government particularly, or another good example is Philip Alston, the special rapporteur on extreme poverty, coming to the UK and saying, you know, poverty in the UK looks like Dickensian Britain. No government likes this, so they push back very hard, saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's you know all all of that. You you be familiar with all of that. So most human rights activism, advocacy, talk, law is all about saying to states, stop doing that. You should be doing this. Um, and 
I think in an era where state sovereignty is less constrained, and for me it's less constrained because you don't have dominant states in the system who will use that law to further their own interests, but also to realise some good things along the way. But you have a much more even distribution of power with lots of states that can go to get support from China, for example, and China saying, well, OK, we're not, we don't care what your human rights record is, it's your business. Uh, and uh, North Korea or something of that sort, we're not interested in the business of interfering in other people's governments. You saw the spat this week about Hong Kong between Britain and China, that's a good example. You know, but the British have been hypocritical in all sorts of ways about human rights. So they were just using that as a way to say to the Chinese, treat, you know, recognize your citizens' human rights. Chinese quite understandably said, get lost, you know, we're a great power, China's part of, uh, Hong Kong's part of China, we'll do what we want. So all of that human rights stuff is basically just a pain for governments when they want to do, you know, it's fine if you're not being criticised, fine if you can use it to criticise somebody else, but when it's directed at you, all governments get unhappy about it. So, in a sense, all governments will experience a degree of relief about the fact that the, this kind of human rights pressure is, is going away, because most governments enjoy as the greatest sort of latitude they can get in terms of accountability. Um, and we know at times of duress, like during the early years of the War on Terror, most governments moved to more surveillance, relaxing the laws on um, uh, being held without trial. All governments are looking for space, as it were, to, to do their own things. So less human rights pressure, the happier governments are. If you go back to my early remarks, this won't work in quite the same way for humanitarianism because there you have children washed up on the beach who've drowned, there you have famine, there you have, you know, um, uh, obvious examples of atrocity where hospitals are being bombed, and you have public pressure on those governments saying, do something about this. So it's not, it's not saying to the government, you're responsible for this, it's saying you can do something about this and you have to. And particularly in democracies, that is relatively powerful. And so the humanitarian system is then functional in the way I described earlier for saying, don't worry, it's being taken care of by the experts. It'd be like having, this is probably a terrible analogy to use, but it would be like having a, a, a special clinic where, you know, rather than deal with social problems you've got, you just send everybody off to be dealt with in the special clinic. And every everybody, as it were, is now... It can say, okay, it's being dealt with, somebody's looking, you know, the special doctors, nurses and others are dealing with this problem, it's not our problem anymore. Even if that problem is being caused by structural issues within the society itself, you kind of bury your bad news effectively. You know, you lock people up, you medicalise them, all pretty standard Foucauldian stuff. You turn it into a social problem and then you lock people up or make them subject to a sort of regime of care and everybody else can say, it's fine, it's being dealt with. And that's functional for governments internally and it's functional for governments at the international level, whereas human rights is basically something which all of them would be happy to see the back of. That's my view. Not their populations, but the sort of governing institutions of the state. And we've spoken about the likely effects this shifting world order is going to have on the humanitarian sector and the humanitarian regime and also the kind of structural uh, impact it has in a world environment. But it'd be interesting to see what you think more on the ground is 
what kind of impact this will have on individual humanitarian workers. Are they going to really notice a change or is it actually just the systems of power in place and the role that humanitarian organisations occupy or, or are these individuals going to see a change? I think they will see a change in two or three ways. But it's important to say at the outset that they've been seeing a change for a long time. They've, they've seen a change immediately after the war on terror. And they, this idea that you were either with or against the Western project, whatever that was. Um, and so you saw it very strongly in Afghanistan. So you've seen more aid workers kidnapped. You've seen more aid workers killed. You've seen what, what humanitarians talk about as the narrowing of humanitarian space in this way. Countries that even the most um, courageous um, humanitarian organisations like MSF or countries like Somalia, countries like Syria will pull out of. Like we can't do business here because we don't can't even rely on the very basic understanding that you don't shoot at us when we come to talk to you. We can't even rely on that. We have to pull out. There's no humanitarian space there. So that's already underway. And there's lots and lots of work on attacks on aid workers and kidnapping of aid workers and things. A lot of which, of course, is not expat international aid workers. It's local aid workers. This leads into a second point, which I think is also the case and will just become more the case, which is there's always been a real structural disjuncture between what global humanitarian NGOs and agencies say they do and should do and what their policies are and what their principles are and what actually goes on day to day on the ground in situations of conflict or disaster. So we can see really negative examples of that around the sex abuse scandal in Oxfam. Oxfam just didn't know, and then it did know, and then it buried it, and all of that, we see all of that. But it's more on a day-to-day basis. If you talk to someone who's worked in, in, in situations of extremists on the ground in Congo, Syria, wherever it would be, they they day to day make all sorts of deals arrangements with local warlords militias local people in order to be able to do their basic business so the an organization might have a policy which says we do not negotiate with warlords but you'll find numerous situations on the ground where local people do negotiate local humanitarian workers say but then we can't do any of our job So we need either protection or we need permission to be able to do our job. And for that, we have to uh, negotiate with local warlords. And sometimes that will mean providing resources to them. Fuel, for example, or money that can be used for weapons, things of this sort. Now, no organisation is going to admit that. And many organisations at the global level will not know that that exactly that that's happening on the ground on a day to day basis. But humanitarians will know that you just have to get the job done. And sometimes you have to do that by scrapping the rules and making it up as you go along often with the And as long as you keep that sole focus on I'm providing aid to those who are suffering and that's my primary driver, then most humanitarians are pretty comfortable with that. All I'm trying to do is get to the people who are suffering and provide healthcare, medical care, support for them. And if we have to bend and break some of these rules in order to do that, there's no way we can have a conversation, a conference call back with head office, wherever it is, and discuss what the right thing to do is. You have to make the decision on the ground at the time. Sometimes it will be, remember one anecdote I was told about, a sort of local tribal chief coming in with one of his children, and there was a really strict policy that you had to be treated um, according to, you know, 
the, the triage process you get in any hospital, which is according to need. I think the need wasn't perceived to be this great. But the doctors knew that if they really upset this person, then they wouldn't be able to operate in the local area. And everybody understood that. So they just moved him to the front. Maybe his daughter was ill, I can't quite remember. Treated his daughter. He went up. And that was, but that was the smart thing to do. But it broke all their protocols about triage. But politically, it was a smart thing to do. And then they could just carry on doing their work. So that's a small example. Is, is that going to be increasingly at odds with, especially after problems like the Oxfam case, with this growth in accountability and a lot more humanitarian agencies being a lot more scrutinised, uh, is this going to be playing at odds with this need to move away and, and bend the rules occasionally? It's an interesting question. There's masses of autobiographies, biographies, memoirs, historical accounts, journalistic accounts about what happens on the ground in a refugee camp, for example, or a disaster. And much of this stuff is very shocking. But it doesn't really rise to the level of political saliency, even though all the material is out there. And I think that goes partly to the alibi point, which is people don't really want to know. They just want to know that something is being done so they don't have to worry about it. It doesn't trigger their own personal moral uh, sense of responsibility. I think it links into a further point I was going to make to the previous question, which is there has got to be an increasing localisation of the provision of humanitarian support. Local people know their own societies and cultures better. They often have credibility where international people don't have credibility, which is not always the case because in many awful situations, local people want the internationals. And they want the internationals because they think they're better protected if the internationals are there. But local people are often much more nuanced about what's going on. They know who you're talking to. When you think you're talking to somebody about whether they can provide driving services for you, they'll be able to say, actually, these people are linked into that group. And so if you take them on, then you're really going to annoy this other group. And so you need to know that those are the underlying politics, all of that kind of stuff. But also uh, communities have tremendous local resources often unless they're completely wiped out by something like a tsunami often the first responders are always local and they'll be churches mosques you know they'll be uh, local families extended families who will send resources or come and try to find people and move them into say the capital city if they're living in rural areas which have been affected negatively in some way so most first responders are local the question really then is about resourcing them. And here this is a really powerful issue around the business model for global humanitarianism. If it's just if it's a conduit for getting money from wealthy people to people who really need it, then we can see how that would function. You know, we we can take cash from London and we can give it to somebody in wherever it would be, you know, in, in Myanmar, who can do good work with it. And all we're really doing, we're just a money transfer service. But of course, we know it doesn't work like that. You have armies of highly trained professionals in those organisations who want to go and do the work themselves, who think they're experts in doing the work who think quite rightly in some occasions, you know, the work will be done badly or they don't have the, the people on the ground don't have the necessary medical and other skills to do the work properly. So it's, I'm not, I don't want to paint too black and white a picture in that way. It's definitely, it's definitely a much more mixed picture. But essentially getting local first responders to be better resourced, to be better trained, will make a massive potential difference in many cases. Uh, to give you one example, uh, the Ebola outbreak, not the current uh, one, but the, the uh, earlier one. The single biggest thing 
that would have made a difference there is really well-trained local nurses who could, who could recognise the signs, who knew the appropriate treatment and had credibility with the local people. In fact, a lot of the analysis about failure in the initial Ebola intervention was because Western aid organisations turned up in their hazmat suits and local people saw them turning up and they knew what that meant was their children would start dying. And that was that was the way in which it looked to them. There'd been no attempt to explain what was going on. And so you got local people actually taking sick adults and children away, further away from these services to try to protect them. But Ebola is tremendously infectious and now it's spreading very, very quickly. So, so, you know, funding local nurses, funding local healthcare, doing these sorts of things may well make a massive difference, bigger difference longer term than some kind of emergency or crisis response. But that does go against this huge business model. This is a multi-billion dollar business. MSF, you know, World Vision, CRS, IRC... CAFOD, these organisations make billions of dollars a year and so so there's a tension there. Uh, ODI or the Humanitarian Policy Group of ODI produced a document recently called Time to Let Go or Letting Go, something like that and uh, you know cynics like me look at that and say there's no way you're letting go because your whole business model is based upon trying to get people locally to do it the way you want them to do it because you have all the money and the resources. And that's not just a humanitarian problem, that is the bigger problem, how you transfer wealth to people who can then use it in more productive ways locally. So I just think there's a huge potential tension there. The letting go thing will be very hard. It basically means we've succeeded when our business model has vanished because all we're really doing is seeing a disaster. We know there'll be local first responders with expertise. We're making sure they've got the medical, food, all the things they need, shelter, to provide that. Professor Steve Hopgood, thank you very much. Thank you. The Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond.